Episode 6.2. People talk about self-care, but there's got to be more to it than yoga and a manicure. Right after the November 2016 election, when so many of us were feeling defeated or anxious or shocked or shattered, we started getting a lot of advice about self-care. Everything from remembering to take your meds and drink enough water and get to yoga class to minor self-indulgences like manicures and massages seemed to be in order. But as we learned from Gretchen Malios, a therapist and yoga teacher who I interviewed in part one of this episode, self-care has to go deeper. When we know how to engage in self-care that really has integrity, yes. that has like deeper value, yes, than that's what we want. A service self-care, <laughs> yes. then we um, we make an impact. Yes. So I like to think of self-care um, not in that cliche term that we kind of throw out. Yes. Right. Um, that then loses its meaning because mm-hmm. it's so diluted. I like to think of it actually as a highly, highly skillful tool with a very deep purpose. This deeper understanding of self-care as the thing we do to help us do the work that matters has roots in radical politics. In fact, we can trace it back to the activism of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. Dr. Alondra Nelson is Columbia University Dean of Social Science and the author of Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. So um, by 1968, um, the Black Panther Party's sort of central leadership says to um, the, at this time, mushrooming chapters all over the country, um, you know, if you want to be a Black Panther chapter, um, you have to, you know, sell the Black Panther newspaper. There are certain kinds of political education and structural and political um, sort of um, sort of alignments that one must have. And it was also the case that, um, you know, you had to have a health clinic. So that was not always the case from the beginning of the Black Panther Party. But by 68, that is the case. And it's the case in part because it was, um, as these local chapters are being established, one of the things that these local communities needed. I mean, they were, um, you know, as I discussed, in situations in which they either had no access to healthcare or that the access that they had was, um, you know, was compromised either because they were dealing with, um, you know, deeply racist institutions, deeply racist, you know, doctors and nurses and a, a kind of mainstream healthcare system that, um, you know, was experienced by individuals in black communities as not having their best interests. It didn't feel like humane or respectful care, not having their best interests at heart. The Black Panther Party expanded its activities from armed patrols to, quote, police the police, to include what could be understood as medical self-defense. They called them survival programs, and they included the free breakfast program that fed 20,000 kids a week. Black Panthers also offered community classes in first aid, provided drug and alcohol rehab, escorted seniors to medical appointments, they ran ambulance services, they organized against medical exploitation, including a UCLA clinic that was about to promote brain surgery as a cure for black male aggression. And they opened 13 medical clinics. Um, and so it was it was very much a response to um, people's actual needs. It's also the case that um, members of the Black Panther Party write about needing health care for themselves. So some 
um, had experiences of incarceration. And so there's a, a, you know, a, a piece of this that's about having been incarcerated and not having access to healthcare. And how do you, you know, do you have to bring in your own doctors, bring in people to consult with you? And that experience of institutionalization um, was a real catalyst for some. For others, it was also that um, they realized as they were working in their local communities as rank and file members of the party um, that uh, they needed health care for themselves as well. So, um, uh, so there's a, a, an article, a very nice, interesting article, um, and the, I think it's a communist newspaper called The Daily World in 1969 um, that I found in the archives and used in my work that's called, uh, the title of it is something like The Panther's Map of People's medical plan. And in it, they talk about, you know, really sort of being kind of a year into getting health work underway, but they also talk about needing health care for themselves so that part of their mission was not only for local communities, but also understanding that activists in particular who were working 18, 20 hours a day, they were often living communally and they were worn down and sort of exchanging diseases among them and uh, their communal homes and, you know, um, needed to take care of themselves as well. So it was this dual mission, you know, um, their health politics, you know, both for us, the activists and for the communities that we care about. In 1972, the Black Panther Party added to its national platform a demand for, quote, completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. How does that radical collective concept of self-care connect to what we talk about in terms of self-care today? Well, I think that they, uh, you know, the one thing I have to say about, you know, having spent, spent time um, interviewing for, former members of the party is that they're very good organizers and they really, there, there is a sense that there's a, a kind of love of community is the, the sort of seedbed out of which their work comes. So they would not, I think many of them would not immediately castigate young folks today talking about self-care, um, you know, they would say, you're right to have to care for yourself. And we as activists, you know, really understood that self-care was part of the work that we needed to do. And that self-care for us, you know, for the Black Panthers, or you might think of as concentric circles. So it went from the individual activists to the chapter, often living communally, you know, or to that person's family, the chapter, to the local community and the like. So there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, they would say um, that we under always understood our health politics to be um, also, a, you know, a structural critique um, of, you know, the the unwillingness of, you know, um, you know, capitalist, um, you know, societies, the their inability um, in their very structure. Uh, to provide adequate needs for all of the people that live in these societies. Um, and so self-care for them and even, you know, medical care more generally was always a critique of the status quo and also a vision of ways to do things better, um, a vision of a way to do things better. So self-care, I think they would say, um, shouldn't be narcissistic, shouldn't be something that takes one out of the community, um, you know, should be should be understood as being necessary um, in part uh, because of the deficits of other forms of nurturance and care, um, but you know, but that it's okay to to want to take care of oneself, right? But there'd be a balancing in that, I think. So it's got to be about addressing the structural deficits, the large scale inequities in care and nurturance. It's about getting into the community and restoring and healing 
in concentric circles from the self outward, self-care not as individual indulgence, but as collective survival. There are strong parallels to this approach in work that's being done in Latinx communities, especially around issues of reproductive justice. So I'm Kat Savea, and I'm an anthropologist, and I am recently retired from the University of California, Santa Cruz. And right now I'm doing research on the movement for reproductive justice, and they take self-care very seriously, but they also, um, I'm writing about the way in which they sort of move it into what they call healing justice. This tradition of healing justice, Dr. Zavella links to traditional medicinal practice in Latinx communities. We look at curanderismo, um, you know, sort of indigenous healers. Uh, they've been around uh, since time immemorial. And I think um, beginning in the 1960s is when Latinx people began to sort of pay attention to our heritage, our culture, and that included healing practices. But because they're considered alternative therapies, um, you know, some people sort of will balance um, going to a, a spiritual healer with going to Western medicine. And I think Western medicine these days is now beginning to pay attention to these alternative uh, ways of knowing and ways of healing. And so now I think there's more attention paid to curanderos. Traditional medicine held space for a concept of reproductive justice much broader and much deeper than just abortion rights. So the classic definition of reproductive justice is that women have the right to have children, not have children, and raise their children in healthy environments. So that includes a whole range of issues. Of course, clearly, the right to have access to health care, including prenatal care, and you know, well baby, well children, follow-up care, uh, the right to abortion, uh, and the right to contraception if women are, don't want to um, have children. Um, and the right to have quality environments, so clean air and parks where you can take your children to play or to exercise, or uh, food security, places where you can buy healthy food. So it really sort of, the reproductive justice movement very much intersects with other social justice movements like environmental justice, like immigrant rights, like LGBTQ rights. And I think that's part of what makes it really intriguing to me and I think makes it very compelling to lots of people. I've heard over and over again people say, I can bring my full self into mm. the movement. That means their self that's interested in spirituality or the environment or children or elders. Um, it really sort of, I think, is a very open kind of movement. The movement hasn't built clinics, but it has built centers, which provide information, support, and referrals. They also provide educational programs and different kinds of activities like cafecitos, where women get together around coffee, um, or platicas, where women will come together and talk about particular issues. And in those spaces, that's where they begin to learn about the reproductive justice framework, but also the way in which it's a movement um, that uses the phrase intersectionality. It, it reaches out to lots of different types of people in the community and honors the difference that people bring into their work. And so in many ways, reproductive justice sort of provides um, an orientation uh, towards thinking about 
social inequalities very differently hmm. and looking at how they're not just what happens to us individually, but they're part of the social categories that we belong to. And they're very much embedded in the social structures. You don't just go seeking self-care to improve your own condition. You get an education as well for your mind, for your soul, for your consciousness, so that you can see the structures that foster inequality and harm well-being. Self-care looks like community organizing. Uh, the other way is what they call culture shift work, where they produce mm. a series of images or representations um, that get circulated in, the, in public that really are asking us to think about the strength and resiliency of communities of color. So, for example, there's a Strong Families Initiative that has what they call Mama's Day Our Way uh, greeting cards that are posted online. You can also um, you know, buy them in hard copy. And they're images of different kinds of families, uh, gay and lesbian families, um, people of color, uh, fathers nurturing their children, etc., sort of trying to make the point that we come in all different sizes and shapes and colors and structures. And instead of sort of celebrating mom, dad, and two kids, let's celebrate all different kinds of families and think about what are their needs and what should happen. And then the third area of work is they focus on policy change. So depending on where they're located, different organizations will pay attention to local and statewide and national kinds of policies that have effects on people. So they might take on immigration reform, for example, and mm -hmm. help organize a demonstration. And this work of culture shift uses social media. That's right. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, these can be part of self-care, especially when it shifts the discourse or opens up new space for understanding. So Young Women United in Albuquerque put together a critique of all of the teen pregnancy prevention discourse that's out there that's all about children having children and blaming them for poor decisions. And instead, they say, well, actually, if you look at the physiology of it, it's actually very healthy to have children at a young age. And if you look at the history, um, many communities of color, you know, women start having children at a young age. And there's a whole extended kin networks and communities that are there to help parent the child. Huh. So uh -huh. it isn't necessarily a horrible thing that you have people having children while they're still, um, you know, under legal age. Mm -hmm. And so they circulate images of moms and their children when they're graduating from high school or graduating from college huh. or young, yeah. young dads and their children. They finish some course. So it's all about the positive representation. And they also ask us to think about how have people survived and thrived over the generations? Well, we have our spiritual tradition. We have religion. We've learned how to be self-sufficient. We've learned how to maintain our cultural integrity, even when we're sent to boarding schools, for example. So they're very mindful of paying attention to how people of color have been able to survive, despite the many things that have happened. And sort of honoring the ways in which we often quietly sort of just get in there and do it. And they want us to say, well, let's celebrate that. Let's pay mm -hmm. attention to that. This way of seeing self-care as the steady, everyday work of survival, not as a dramatic escapist plunge into an aromatherapeutic bath, that's exactly what I've been trying to see in and say about American democracy. 
It's not just about electoral hoopla. It's about the things we do every day to keep our relationships and our communities strong and honest and accurate and responsible. This is something the women of color, Dr. Zavella studies, know very well. Well, what I've seen, I've actually done um, a couple of focus groups with young women in Albuquerque. And it's really, um, and I've done them in other cities too, and it's really impressive the way these young women, first of all, they sound so mature, you know, like they're really thoughtful. They've thought through what their identity is, what their values are, what they think about, you know, the materials that are being presented. And, you know, sometimes they, you know, they question like, that's not exactly what I believe. But often they very much find that it's like a door opening, like they hadn't thought about how the media objectifies women, for example. You know, these are these are young women. And so they know it feels a little weird and, you know, all that bad language in some of the music, but they hadn't quite been trained to sort of look critically at that. And once they do, then it really is a revelation for many of them. And then when you take those same young women and you teach them that your experience matters, let's learn how to tell a story that's about your experience, that's a really, I would argue, an empowering process. And then when you take those young women to the state legislators and you ask them to talk to you know, their local congresspeople about policies that will have an effect on their lives and to tell those stories, you know, it's just, it's like layer upon layer of yeah. these women sort of building skills, building confidence, uh, and building a sense of strength. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, I was um, doing some uh, lobbying in uh, Denver with a woman who started off in their 13-year-old group. By the time I saw her, she was 15 years old. And there was a group of us, there must have been five or six of us, adults, um, lobbying the state legislator and Gina comes in and she says, okay, what do we need to do? And by the end of our little five minute get together, she took the lead and she took the lead in front of the state legislature. And we all looked at each other like, wow, you know, like how impressive is this? So, you know, it's actually been really, I think, very interesting to see the growth that young women experience. Self-care looks like putting yourself in places where people believe you, where you have a voice, where your voice matters, where you can grow and lead. And it puts you in stronger relationship to the land under your very feet. So hello, I am Elizabeth Hoover. I'm an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University, which sits here on Narragansett and Wampanoag tribal homelands. Um, I'm of Mohawk and Mi'kmaq descent from upstate New York and eastern Canada, but I've moved out here to Rhode Island to work at this fine university. Dr. Hoover is a leader in the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Food sovereignty is a movement to redress the many impacts of colonialism by reconnecting indigenous communities with their food. People here in this hemisphere were minding their own business with their own food systems. And kind of as soon as European folks arrive, food systems are disrupted in one way or another. So you have food was intentionally targeted for destruction, destruction as a way of weakening um, politically strong confederacies like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So, you know, the first president, um, the, the reason why the many of the Haudenosaunee nations, the term for president is town destroyer is because of the way that Washington 
sent General Sullivan out to to set fire, to burn down the, the crops and the food stores of um, Haudenosaunee nations across Western New York, especially the Seneca Nation. Buffalo were intentionally slaughtered to harm the Sioux. Navajo orchards were burned and Navajo sheep were destroyed. Removal and land theft and allotment made it harder to grow traditional foods and to hunt and gather in a traditional way. Because what you can grow or gather or hunt in Georgia isn't necessarily there in Oklahoma. All of these colonial displacements and attacks mean that people lose sovereignty over their food, the power to determine what they eat and how it's made. Now, after removal and relocation, some treaties promised American Indian communities rations, flour, dairy, to make up for what tribal people could no longer produce themselves. And for a long time, those foods were not of good quality. It was not the type of fresh food and vegetables and fresh meat that people were used to gathering and hunting themselves. There was a lot of food with a lot of preservatives in it, starchy food, um, you know, high-carbohydrate food that people were not used to eating. And then you see the elevation of diabetes in communities. In the 1990s, a global organization brought together indigenous and small-scale farmers who were being pushed out by big agribusiness. They developed the term food sovereignty to mean access to healthy, culturally appropriate food and control over its means of production. The movement includes restoring traditional food processes and educating communities, assisting with the relearning of how to grow, cook, and use the foods their aunties and grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers loved. And thrived on. And so it's different from food security. You know, it's not just do you have enough calories in your belly every day, but do you have control over what that food is and how it's produced, where it comes from? The self-care entailed in food sovereignty, of course, it helps the individual. It's better quality food of a greater variety, produced ethically and sustainably closer to home. But it also makes relationships healthier too. People get healthier when they're restored to knowledge and to their relationships with each other. It's not just the economics of it, the how do you, um, instead of pumping all of your money into a, a business that um, does not you know, give back to your community in any way, how are you supporting local farmers and local fishermen and local you know, ranchers and hunters, but also how are you getting this healthy food that is in culturally important and connects you to your relatives? It's about rebuilding continuity across the generations and the land and relationship to the land. You know, in your self-care, yourself as part of this broader web of different types of bodies. So if you are eating food that's produced in this culturally relevant, socially important way, you, know, you are working with seeds that look the way they do because of generations and generations of seed keepers who selected for certain traits. And so that connects you to all those grandmas who made that corn, those beans, those squash, look the way they did through those selections. You're planting alongside other people um, on land that your relatives, your tribal community fought for to maintain and continues to, to add to and nourish and learning how to cook those things and process those things takes community working together. So if you're going to be nixtamalizing your corn that you grew, 
you know, learning that from aunties and from grandmas. In Dr. Hoover's view, it's even about restoring right relationship between human and non-human communities. Um, if it's about fishing, you know, that was uh, the, the book that I just finished, The Rivers in Us Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community, um, is about Akwazasne. And the, one of the chapters in there, you know, this is a community that's downstream from Superfund sites. And so had their food sovereignty disrupted by the knowledge that they you know, were told not to eat local food because of the way that it was impacted by environmental contamination. And that wasn't just about the loss of calories and the loss of you know, omega fatty acids and zinc. It was about the loss of relationships with your grandpa when you're out fishing, the time that you spend tying knots in nets that are then, you know, so this was an activity that people did during the wintertime that they weren't doing when people weren't fishing. You know, the learning how to cook those fish with your grandma, um, just the relationship that you're supposed to have with those fish was something that some of the former fishermen described to me, that there's a reciprocal relationship that you're supposed to maintain with that community. So your community is not just the people that you find affinity with. The kind of self-care and food sovereignty is relationship-based. It seeks to restore balance and harmony. It regenerates and it recycles. And is sustainable in the sense that you are caring for these other communities and they in turn will care for you. So that if you are making sure that there's the right environment for fish to be healthy and you're then getting these healthy fish out of the water and then your body is healthier, and then that contributes to an even healthier environment for the fish. So when they started testing the fish again recently, they're finding metformin in the fish. So people are you know, taking all this diabetes medicine because they're not getting the right diet, and then that diabetes medicine is excreted through your body and winds up back in the water that winds up in the fish. And so when human bodies are unhealthy, those fish communities are unhealthy. And so if we can you know, fight for the right environment for all those other communities to be healthy, that, you know, for some people fighting as a form of, of self-care can be exhausting as well, um, but feeling as though you're contributing to the betterment of something else can be satisfying in its own way. So last night I got together with friends and cooked a bunch of shellfish from a local fisherman here in this area, um, along with some dried mushrooms that I had picked out in the Adirondacks and some cilantro that came from our little garden here, and some wild ginger that I found on the edge of campus. I had a student who came back who helped me in the garden, and we went and pulled up some of that and added it to the broth, and some seaweed that I had gathered and dried last fall. And so just, you know, each of those little actions, you know, that I went and gathered that seaweed when I was just so irritated and exhausted with life and <laughs> couldn't deal anymore. So I went and I gathered food and cleaned it and dried it, and then was able to kind of add all of this to this random meal that we had together last night. And then they were nourished and I was nourished and it was an all around. And your time. relationships with the fishermen, you know, the traditional fishermen uh, wasn't, were nourished. And yeah, I can see the radiation of it all outward. Now, for those of us who are strangers in this land, how would you translate food sovereignty? So I think it's recognizing your relationships to the whole network that feeds you. So how are you, you know, to that random person in the suburb, connecting with the person who's growing your food, hunting your food, capturing your food? How are you advocating for um, the preservation of the type of land that's necessary for that? How are you advocating for the rights of Native people in your state who need access to traditional land where they go? 
and get their own food. So how are you advocating for, you know, in the upper Midwest, Anishinaabe people who are trying to get access to rising lakes and places where they're fishing? And in the past, people have staunchly fought against giving people access. Here on the East Coast, you know, tribes that don't have access to the ocean and who are persecuted when they try to get access to the ocean because wealthy landowners don't want tribal people you know, stomping through their summer home lands. So how do you relax on that and just let indigenous people go gather food in places where they always have and be an advocate and a supporter in that way? Dr. Hoover extends it to buying from companies that treat workers fairly, supporting the people who produce the food, cooking and eating in a meaningful, intentional way. And one more thing. And go out and plant something. So dig up your lawn, for God's sakes. I hate lawn. Stop dumping herbicides and pesticides onto that monocrop in front of your house that then just wind up in the waterways and pollute the rest of the things we want to be eating. And plant something useful and edible that butterflies can eat as well and honeybees and the other types of communities who are now being threatened by all of the crap that people pour on their lawns. From Dr. Nelson, Dr. Zavella, and Dr. Hoover, we hear a much more powerful and richer concept of self-care. It's a self-care that doesn't just seek to make you feel better, but it seeks to heal relationships between people, between people and the land, and to ground that healing in a deep understanding of how things got so broken. Why are our bodies sick? Why do we find ourselves craving comfort carbs, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, or even more impactful forms of escape? Why do we find ourselves pulling in from relationships, curling up, resisting movement, resisting contact with dirt and water and the elements? It's not just personal. It's about long and damaging histories and enormous structures of power. It's easy to feel overwhelmed, but as each of these women experts have told us, the power to care for yourself and your community is within your grasp. It can start with sharing a cup of coffee with women friends to talk honestly about the worries we carry, or a shared meal with attention to eating ethically sourced local foods, or even with pulling up your lawn. American middle-class culture has sold us on ideas of progress that are about getting somewhere else or getting something new, but they've cost so much to so many people. Perhaps self-care is about slowing down long enough to count those costs and envision new healthier ways of being for ourselves, our families, communities, and democracy. Thank you to our cross-promotional sponsor, the Department of English at CUNY Hunter College, which counts among its alum the great black poet activist and thinker Audre Lorde, who said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Check them out on our website, AmericanBeautyPodcast.org. And if you like what you heard, whether on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, or YouTube. I've learned a few things since we started. We're everywhere now, so please take a moment and rate, 
review, subscribe, and share.